Judges chapter 1, starting at the beginning. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with them. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and fought against and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. And afterwards, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites, who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kerith Arba. And they defeated Shisai, Adiman, and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of the Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksai, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Asha, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Pams into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev, near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. That's Judges chapter 1, continuing at verse 22. 
The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labour, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza. So the Canaanites lived in Giza among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labour. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Axib or of Helbar or of Aphek of Rahob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labour for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Aijalon and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labour. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upwards. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim and they sacrificed there to the Lord. On Christmas Eve 1941, Lancer Flight 508 took off from Lima Airport. On board was Julianne Kupka, traveling home for Christmas. 30 minutes into the flight, the pilots spot bad weather, but press on. The plane encounters turbulence. Luggage starts to fall out of the lockers, and then it starts to dive. At one moment, Julianne was in the plane, and the next, she's falling. 
falling through the air from 10,000 feet, still strapped to her seat. The next moment, she wakes up alone in the Peruvian rainforest. She'd remained there for 11 days. An hour before, Julianne had been sitting on the runway, thinking of home and of Christmas. And now she's lost, alone in a snake-infested jungle. How did it end up like this, she must have asked. And as we enter this new sermon series, we should have a similar question. Because things in Israel are absolutely, unspeakably awful. There's cowardice, testing God, idolatry, child sacrifice, oath-breaking murder, and womanizing. And that is just the judges, Israel's superheroes at the time. Besides that, there's oppressive rulers, pillagers, fratricide, betrayal, sexual assault, and the book ends with a poor woman's body parts being posted all around Israel and bridal kidnap on an industrial scale. Welcome to the book of Judges. Things are unspeakably awful. But that's not how they began. If we zoom out to the overall story of the Bible, things were pretty positive going in. God's taken this guy, Abraham, and promised him a huge family and a land to dwell in. Uh, During a not-so-brief stay in Egypt, his little clan is blown up into a huge nation. God has rescued them from slavery, that's the Exodus, and has brought them through the desert with a few ups and downs to the edge of this beautiful land. And he's raised up Joshua, who has led the people into the land and their inheritance, and they are well on the way to victory. But then comes judges. And suddenly things are unspeakably awful. Even our passage today literally ends in tears. Uh, Did you notice a town renamed Weepers, heartbreak on the hill because of the sadness of the situation? How did it go so wrong? As we see the answer to that question, it's going to be played out over the next 10 weeks Uh, Judges is going to teach us about ourselves. If you're here today just looking in, uh, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. And I realize lots of this is going to be quite strange. Uh, But I hope that you'll listen today and come back next week and keep listening. Uh, You'll find that the Bible is far more honest about what people are like than our optimistic world. Judges is going to help us to see what we are really like by nature And so the sort of rescue that we need. Uh, This week, we're going to see our tendency to compromise, to settle for less, to settle for incomplete obedience to the Lord. But to truly grasp the fall, we need to see that Israel started well. Uh, That's verses 1 to 20. And there's a handout on the inside of the service sheet, if that would be helpful to you. Uh, It started so well. I look down at verse 1. After the death of Joshua. Uh, Judges begins with a potential crisis. Uh, God's people only control a small portion of the land that they've been promised, and Israel have just lost their godly and God-appointed commander. Uh, But what happens next in the chapter is remarkably positive. Uh, They're keen to continue, so they ask the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Judah shall go up, the Lord replies. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So Judah, they get to it with the help of their tribal next door neighbours, Simeon. And they really do seem to be on board with the Lord's will. 
We know from Genesis and Deuteronomy that the conquest of Canaan has a dual purpose. Uh, The land is a good land flowing with milk and honey, which the Lord has promised to his people as an inheritance. Uh, But it's also a land filled with horrific evil and idolatry. And the Lord is bringing judgment against the people who live there. Uh, That is why God's people are told to utterly destroy, to devote to destruction, the cities and people of the land. So the conquest has two goals, justice and generosity. And Judah really do seem to be on board with both of those goals. And we get to see that in these little snapshots of the action that we get in Judges chapter one. Uh, First, there's a battle of Bezek in verses three to eight. Uh, Judah defeat a huge Canaanite army and they capture the local warlord, Abnai Bezek, Lord Bezek. We might flinch a little at Lord Bezek's grisly end, uh, but he knows exactly why it's happening. Uh, Look down at verse seven. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up the scraps under my table. As I have done, he says, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. This Canaanite king, he was a tyrant ruling through fear and mutilation. And he himself knows that the game is up. Uh, This is God's right judgment exercised through his people. So with the local armies beaten, Judah continued to Jerusalem and they destroy it exactly as God had told them to do. Perhaps this chapter is hard for us to read. We might think of people misusing chapters like this to excuse crusades and religious violence. And those really are misuses, can I say. God is speaking to his people at a very particular point in history. And though these words are for us, they apply in different ways to us now, given where we are in the Bible story. But if our struggle is with the idea that God judges at all, with his right to judge, with the rightness of his justice, can I say we need to think again? Because it really is a good thing that God judges sin. And it's his right to choose how and when that judgment happens, whether that is entirely at the end of time when Jesus returns or in part through history, through a human army. This was God's right justice. And it's a really good thing that Judah were on board with it. That's the first snapshot, the battle of Bezek. And then we get this second snapshot in verses 11 to 15, Othniel's quest. Uh, We'll meet Othniel again as a judge in chapter three, but here he's a soldier uh, taking up a special mission to capture a city. Uh, Like every brave hero, he succeeds against impossible odds and he gets the girl. And after the action, his new wife, she negotiates with her dad to get this choice bit of land thrown in too. A field with lots of water for growing crops to complete the package. And this little interesting story is meant to show that Judah are on board with the inheritance side of the conquest too. Aksa and Othniel's attitude is exactly the right one. God is giving this people this wonderful land and like Othniel and Aksa, they see that it's a really good gift. They want it and they want even more. It's a good land and like a child on Christmas day, they're desperate for it. Daddy, daddy, can I have another present? Can I have some more? Israel are on board with God's judgment and they are on board with their wonderful inheritance. God's people led by Judah have started off well. 
Uh, They have everything. Uh, A faithful God who has given Canaan into their hands. Uh, Victory is certain. If only they keep going. But by verse 21, it's becoming clearer that God's people are starting to compromise. Uh, That's point two. Compromise. As they head into battle, God's people have been given a very clear command, a clear marching orders. Let me read from Deuteronomy 20, just a little bit earlier in the Bible. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Uh, These are difficult words, but they are unquestionably clear. Uh, Destroy the inhabitants of this land, because they will lead you into their horrific sin and their evil practices. But with a few exceptions, that is not what these tribes are doing. Instead, they settle for a compromise. It starts with Benjamin in verse 21. Uh, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Uh, Notice that it says did not drive out. I think the first time that I read this, I thought it said could not drive out. Uh, Maybe the Jebusites were experts in guerrilla warfare, and it just proved impossible to remove them. Uh, But it really does say, did not. Uh, This was a choice on their part not to finish the job. This was compromise. And compromise doesn't stop with Benjamin. Uh, The camera lifts from him and pans around to the rest of the tribes. Uh, Did you hear as it was being read? The repetition was really obvious. Did not drive out. Did not drive out, did not drive out, did not, did not, did not. And maybe we're sitting here today and we think, what's the problem? Uh, They're in the land, it's all fine. As the military mantra goes, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. And that's an understandable response. Uh, What happens in this chapter, it, it looks so reasonable, doesn't it? Uh, Jerusalem is a mighty city. Uh, What calm could a few Jebusites dwelling there too do? Then there's this little snapshot in verse 23 that describes the capture of Luz. In a move of tactical brilliance, they ask a local to lead the army in return for his life, and he agrees. They sack the city, but spare the man and and his family. Uh, To our eyes, that sounds like a fair deal. And with our Bible hats on, it sounds a lot like what happened with Rahab as Joshua captured Jericho. I imagine the Israelite generals thought so too as they patted themselves on the back, uh, clever tactics and godly too. Uh, So what if this man goes and founds another city? Oh, uh, he's named it Luz after the old one. Uh, How quaint, Um, uh, but what harm could it do? What about the decision to put the inhabitants of the land to forced labour? In verses 28 and 30 and 33 and 35. It looks reasonable, even quite canny. Uh, Why kill them all when there's work to be done? 
Uh, Let them do the hard jobs so that we can focus on other things. You can hear them saying it. God loves mercy. And our city will be more productive for the Lord with more workers. Maybe we'll even get the chance to share the good news with them. What harm could it do? Uh, This chapter is a litany of compromise. God's people disobeying his very clear instructions. But from a worldly perspective, it looks just so reasonable, doesn't it? It looks so reasonable. Uh, Rob and Jess, they've been dating for a few months now. Uh, They met at church and every time they see one another, their hearts skip a beat. Uh, Jess knows it's only a matter of time before Rob proposes. He's just waiting for the perfect romantic moment. Uh, Recently, they've been spending lots of time in Rob's room when his housemates are out and things have been going further. Uh, But they just know it's okay because they're committed and faithful and they know that they're going to get married soon. Sure, they draw the line at living together. That would be a terrible witness to their non-Christian friends. But just making sure that they're compatible before they get married, what harm could that do? Peter is a top employee. Everyone knows that he is utterly dependable. His boss leans his head around the door and asks whether he sent that report off to the Tokyo office. Yes, just now, Peter says, before quickly opening up his laptop to actually do it. No one else in the firm would have an issue with a little lie like that. It makes work life much smoother. Everyone does it. What harm could it do? Emily gets angry all of the time. At work, at home, at the kids. In the past, she's tried to fight it, to pray, to speak about it with Christian friends. But now she just accepts it. That's what she's like. She makes sure to smile when she's imagining throwing her laptop at her annoying colleagues so no one will notice how she's really feeling. What harm could it do to feel? Like Israel, in so many ways, we compromise. In our heart of hearts, we know that God has spoken clearly, but we go for some sort of respectable middle ground. Whether it's sinful actions or the struggle with sin within, we settle for compromise. And frankly, that compromise can look really reasonable, even sensible, even wise. But Judges wants us to be really clear that compromise like this isn't canny. It isn't wise. It is utterly scandalous. A compromise is scandalous. I look down at chapter two, where God calls his people to account. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? If those last words sound familiar, they're right out of Genesis 3, the first example of God's people choosing to disobey him. Except this time, it's not forbidden fruit, but forbidden people. What is this you have done? These words are devastating. 
And they reveal the scandal of what God's people have really done. You have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Remember that kind deal with the man from Luz? Uh, Remember that the inhabitants of the land were under God's judgment for their evil practices. That word kindly in verse 24, that's hesed, uh, the word that normally refers to the Lord's covenant love. Uh, What Israel are doing here is clearly a covenant with a Canaanite, a deal with the devil, disobedience. God is the faithful keeper of his covenants, but Israel chose the people in the land over the God who rescued them. A compromise is utterly scandalous, and Israel will feel the consequences. Look at verse 3. So now I say, says the Lord, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Remember that clever business trick with the Canaanites, putting them to forced labor rather than driving them out? It turns out it's not so clever. If Israel were hoping to redeem the Canaanites, their hopes were sadly misplaced. The whole point of God's command was to protect his people from the sin that would ensnare them. But Israel instead chose disobedience. And it's them, not Canaan, that would find themselves changing God's. However wise it looked, however reasonable, Israel's compromise was just that, compromise. You see, there's no such thing as partial obedience. They heard the clear command of the Lord, and what they did was choose to disobey. Rather than staying loyal to him, they chose covenants with Canaan. Rather than driving out sin and evil, they chose to tolerate it. God's assessment is utterly devastating. You have not obeyed my voice, he says. What is this you have done? This passage is a real challenge to us. It's a challenge when we settle for reasonable looking compromise. It's telling us that when we settle for that sort of compromise, we are settling for disobedience. When God gives us clear commands in his word, the standard isn't what seems reasonable to me, what seems godly. The standard is what has the Lord said? It was utterly scandalous that Israel heard God say, you shall devote them to destruction and said, let's live among them. Let's let them live among us. Just so it's utterly scandalous when Rob and Jess hear God say, flee sexual morality. And they say, how far is too far? Or we're practically married. It's okay. Or when white lie Peter hears God say, do not lie to one another and says, I'm not going to lie about big things. Or when angry Emily hears God say, put sin to death in the power of the spirit and says, I won't shout at my kids, but beyond that, I'm fine. A partial obedience isn't obedience at all. It is unfaithfulness. Uh, We cannot meet God halfway. If that's our attitude today, uh, we must repent. We must ask for God's help to change. It's not just scandalous, it's bad for us. Like the Canaanites in the land, if we compromise with sin, it will ensnare us. Now, of course, there'll be lots of areas of life where this will be much harder to judge. 
Uh, wonderfully, we have real freedom of, as Christians. And your decisions on how to honour Christ uh, won't look exactly like mine or exactly like the person next to you's. Uh, what does it look like to give ourselves to ministry or to the building up of the church? Uh, what should it look like to build our life around the gospel going out to everyone? How should we use our time and our money? These things are complicated. They're not straightforward. But I wonder if sometimes it's a little less complicated than we make out. When we're making decisions, how quick are we to ask, what does God say about this in the Bible? As I've read this passage, God certainly challenged me about how often that thought comes very far downstream. It comes very late in the thought process. And when we've read what the Bible says, do we really listen? Or do we settle for a reasonable looking compromise? It's certainly easy to look different from our non-Christian friends and our colleagues. Uh, You don't need to give very much or go that often to Bible study before you stand out. Perhaps this passage should prompt us to think. Is what we're doing obedience or is it a reasonable looking compromise? That's hard to judge, but a good test might be uh, when I make decisions in this area, do I ask myself, what does God say? Am I striving to honour him? Certainly from this passage, we should be clear that compromise is scandalous. This passage is a warning against reasonable looking disobedience that runs the risk of shipwrecking our faith. So as God's chosen and forgiven people filled with his spirit, we should and we must and we can fight sin and compromise. Uh, By God's grace, it is possible. Some of us have been thinking about that in Romans. Uh, So as we close, uh, we need to pray for his help, don't we? Uh, So let's close by asking God's help together. Heavenly Father, thank you that we are your people, chosen, forgiven, freed and set apart in Christ for your service. We're sorry for those times that we hear you speak and choose compromise over obedience By your spirit, help us to listen. Change us so that we more and more love your word and trust that your ways are best. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.